Well, this morning we'll be sticking, uh, I guess you say sticking our toe <laughs> uh, in the water of Hosea. We're not going to be getting too far, um, but just be- beginning to introduce some things that will be important for us to know before we, we dive in. Uh, this last Sunday, we were sort of tra- transitioning from our summer uh, series on conflict resolution to our series on Hosea. So we discussed uh, our study of the Old Testament. Get this going here. Um, so we looked at sort of the why, why, why do you know, New Covenant believers or Christians need to read, study, know, and apply the Old Testament to our lives. We gave sort of six poss- possibilities. Uh, there are cer- certainly more than that, and some of you came up afterwards and had other thoughts and ideas, but um, uh, that's very, very important for us to, to be familiar with uh, the Old Testament and to, again, make that, uh, make that application we also then went from sort of the why do that to the how. Uh, how do we study and approach the Old Testament? And I, and I mentioned to you that uh, I'll be taking what we refer to as the grammatical historical approach to this rather than, let's say, the, 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 one comment at the very end of class about the uh, Christocentric or Christ-centered method or just, um, which again, this, these are broad descriptions of this. Not, not, uh, not everybody would, would say this is what the Christocentric method is, but it's from what I'm trying to describe is that attempt of, of trying to find Christ as the subject or the topic of every text in the Old Testament or trying to show that every text relates directly to Christ. Um, so what I think is the best way to approach the Old Testament scriptures is with the understanding that what the Old Testament intended to mean is the meaning of the Old Testament. <laughs> So you just look for what was the intention of the author of the Old Testament, and that, in all of its details, is the meaning of the Old Testament. So we don't, if you will, sort of reinterpret Old Testament passages in light of the New Testament, um, but we simply appeal to what the Old Testament Scriptures say. So we just go there and we study the grammar and we study the the flow of thought of these authors and we study the historical occasion and context. We'll be doing that even uh, this morning with uh, the book of Hosea. So we appeal to those things and I'm convinced that that's actually the best way to magnify Jesus Christ. The best way to magnify Jesus Christ is not to try to import Christ into all those Old Testament texts, but to simply determine what's the meaning of the Old Testament text. And in some of those Old Testament texts, they do, di- they do directly relate to Christ. So we're not saying none of them do. We're just saying the ones that do, we, we would see that connection in the text. So the text itself would reveal that connection. And if that's the case, that's fine. But we don't, uh, we don't believe that that's true of every Old Testament uh, passage. So I-, I think this is actually the best way to exalt Christ and the work of Christ uh, while learning the truth and how to live, live our lives as believers. A- Abner Chow, this actually came out this week. He's a professor of hermeneutics at the Master's Seminary, but he posted a blog just this past week. And in that blog, he said, we do not need to force a text to connect to Christ, but rather need to invest the time and effort in seeing the way the biblical writers connect God's word with the word. So what we're looking at is, again, we're looking at the, the actual text, what it says, and then we're connecting that to what other scriptures say, but we're not necessarily trying to, to impose Christ himself into the text. Sometimes those connections are there, and, those, uh, and we could give examples of that. Shane and I were talking this morning, or this week even, about uh, we went to the 1 Corinthians 10 passage where it says that the rock in the wilderness was, it says, is Christ. Okay, so it's like, well, how do you go from the Old Testament uh, narrative in the Pentateuch in, in, in say, uh, Numbers, how do you go from that to, as far as Moses uh, you know, stri- striking the rock, the Lord providing water, sustenance for the people, how do you go that to, well, that's Christ. Well, there's actually a connection in the Old Testament, in the Psalms, where the psalmist himself makes that statement that God was their rock. And it's in the context of talking about the wilderness and God providing water. So it's not that the New Testament writer makes this massive leap. It's that he actually, there's a, if you want to say this, there's a bridge from the original Old Testament context 
to another Old Testament usage to what the New Testament says. And so sometimes you're, you're, you're wondering, how, do, how does the New Testament writer even make that connection? Is that what the Old Testament writer meant? Not necessarily. It's just sometimes the Old Testament, other Old Testament writers picked up those things and made other comments and statements about the original text, and that's what the New Testament writers are, are picking up on. So we spent a lot of time there. I'm just trying to give you a sort of a sense of where we're going with this. Um, but I think this is how we gain the, the, the full theological breadth of the Scriptures and bring the most glory to Christ. Because the Scriptures in the Old Testament have, they say a lot about Christ, but they also say a lot of things about other important doctrines, right, that we need. I mean, if not, when we, we're going to be missing those things that we need for our Christian lives. So, authorial intent, that's what we talked about. Authorial intent, what did the author intend to communicate to his audience? So this is sort of what we refer to as just the normal interpretation. Then we go to this question of what were the implications for the original audience. So in what ways did God's Word impact, shape, and confront them, the original audience, at the level of their motivations? So we're talking about implications. What we're saying is that we're getting beyond the behavior and the conduct and saying what, what were the what were the uh, what were the implications at the motivation level, the thinking level, the conviction level, the, the level of wor- their worldviews, their attitudes, their desires, and their worship? Because if we can get to that piece, those implications, then we can connect that to our lives as New Testament believers, right? Because we're struggling in, at the heart level. Those things are the same things we deal with, right? Faulty worldviews, unbiblical thinking, sinful desires. So we, we, we try to pinpoint the implications for the original audience, and then finally we connect those implications for them to the trials and temptations that we deal with today. And that is, I think, when we discover that truth in 1 Corinthians 10.13, no temptation has overtaken you but such as is common to man. Right? God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. So, um, so we want to jump in today. Now, now, sort of like what Pastor Shane did. Uh, how many of you were here last week, by the way? Okay, so we, it was interesting because we kind of talked about this, and then we go into the worship service, and, when, and Pastor Shane starts into a series on 1 Thessalonians. And basically, what did he do? He preached one verse... And he talked about the people, and he talked about the historical occasion and the background and the history and all those things. And my hunch is today we'll be into verses 2 and, and moving on, but we're all, we'll need to keep that historical context in the back of our minds, right? So we actually jumped over it last week to Acts and saw how the church at Thessalonica was, uh, was formed and some of the issues that were going on there, uh, some, of, some of the trials, which just provides, again, it's, this, it's the backdrop, it's the framework, it's, it's the thing that compels Paul to write what he writes. So we're kind of going to kind of do that today with Hosea. We're just going to barely get in, and then trust me, when we get to the next verse, we're going to start, we're going to pick this up and, and keep, keep it moving. But uh, if you're there, Hosea 1. Okay, we're just, just the first verse. Uh, there's a lot here. So um, this is just sort of a, a, a kind of a, a very familiar, a very standard way of beginning uh, some of the, the prophecies in the Old Testament says the word, it's the New American Standard, the word of the Lord, which by the way, this is the word of the Lord, right? I mean, sometimes we forget that, right? So that's what we're teaching this morning, right? The word of the Lord. And so it just, that ought to just go, the Lord is speaking. I mean, this is his word, okay? The word of the Lord, which came to Hosea, the son of Biri, during the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. Now, some of you may know this. This book sits at the head of the so-called, uh, what we, we refer to as the, the minor prophets. So we've got Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, or we say the Italian prophet, the Malachi, the Italian prophet at the very end. Minor prophets, okay, we call them minor prophets not because they are less important. You know, so we have the major prophets, man, they were the, they were the big hitters. 
we need to pay close attention to them. Minor guys, if we, if we get time, if we have some leftover time, we'll, we'll get to those. Unfortunately, that's, I think, pe- people, the church, I say it, you know, it in, in large part has just, I think, neglected uh, the, uh, the, st- the study in, of, the, of the minor prophets. But they're not minor because they are less important, but because their actual prophecies are shorter than the other prophets. So if you look at the actual, it's not even so much the actual length of the books as it is the prophecies within the books. Because okay? you have narrative sections within those books, and then you have the actual prophecies. But if, if you look at these these minor prophets, you just find that their actual prophecies are shorter than those of, say, Isaiah, Ezekiel, or Jeremiah. Okay? Uh, Jerome, uh, this is in A.D. 40, was actually the first person to apply this term to the twelve. So he, he, this term of minor prophets, um, the twelve is what Jewish people referred to them as. And in ancient times, they were all recorded on one scroll. In fact, the Jews considered them one book. And in their writings, they say, quote, Our fathers made them one book that they might not perish on account of their littleness. So their, their thing was, just, we don't want these, these are, these, some of these are very short. We don't want them to be forgotten. We don't want them to be overlooked. We, want, we don't want them to be lost. And so the idea was we're going to put them all together. And by doing that in, in one scroll, maybe highlight their, their significance, their importance. So these prophets launch essentially an indictment against Israel for, for Israel's unfaithfulness to the Lord in breaking the Mosaic Covenant. Uh, they warn of judgment that was necessary, but they also speak about kingdom blessings that will follow. That is to say, in most of these prophets, we have what we might call bad news indictment that is normally followed by good news pardon. So they usually bring the indictment, they bring the, the warning of impending in, in ju- judgment is coming. There's a, usually a call to repentance, if not once, multiple times. We'll see this sort of cycles in Hosea of calling for repentance. But then behind that is this, these, these promises of, of forgiveness and, and reconciliation and, and restoration. So the, the good news pardon that, that comes, not because Israel was worthy, but because God is faithful to his promises. Okay, so again, you go, you just think about that 1 Corinthians 10, 13, right? Temptations that come, right? We see how Israel failed, even though they had spiritual privilege. Israel had spiritual privilege and yet failed miserably, but God is faithful, right? So it's, it's all right there. Okay, that's that, that, that 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is such a good description of what's going on in the book of Hosea. So we have, we have this this failure on the part of Israel, but that then becomes the thing that is contrasted with God's pardon, which makes the pardon so amazing. Because you realize that these people don't deserve this. They don't deserve this. And then hopefully we'll be making the implications, the connections, right, and saying, we don't deserve this, right? But God is faithful. God is faithful. And in the end, these prophets proclaim that Israel will be saved They will be restored and other nations will be included in the people of God alongside Israel. So God has not rejected the nation that has spurned him, right? That is is the message the Apostle Paul, we we were going through our series in Romans. That was Romans 9, 10, and 11. God has not rejected them. They have been hardened, right, in the words of Paul. Salvation has come to the Gentiles. God has shown and is showing them, the Gentiles, mercy But the Gentiles have not replaced Israel as the focus of God's plan. Or to say it this way, God's word, again, this is in Paul's lingo, God's word has not failed. God's word has not failed. Israel will be shown mercy, and God's grace to them and election of them will stand. Now with that, we want to look at what is called these three introductory features of Hosea. Okay, so let's first of all, let's just talk about Hosea the man. Hosea the prophet, you'll notice there, the word of the Lord which came to Hosea, the son of Biri. Now the the phrase son of Biri doesn't help us a lot because we don't know really anything about that person. So it it would be, you know, if we had some, some information in Scripture about that guy, that might tell us something, but it's just, 
It's just a, 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 a just defines which Hosea we're talking about, but we don't have a lot of info on that on that person. So we have Hosea, and and, and you know we don't want to make uh, go overboard here, but his his name I think does help to highlight the theme of this book, which is salvation by grace through faith. So we have this Hebrew root Yesha, which from which this proper name Hosea is built, and it's this main word group in the Old Testament for uh, whether it's a noun, uh, adjective, a, a verb, but it's, to, uh, it's this, we get these terms save, salvation, uh, or savior from that, that Hebrew root. Um, other names derived from that, uh, from that root, for example, Joshua, uh, Elisha, uh, most importantly, Yeshua or Jesus. Um, reference over, see that connection that Matthew makes in Matthew one twenty eight. Uh, Hosea was also likely a native of the northern kingdom of Israel, along with Jonah. So, of, of all of those um, those minor prophets, only two of them that were sort of, were sort of confident were uh, actually uh, from that that region, the northern region. And then we, again, don't have this explicitly stated in the book, but we just assume as we go through this, I think you'll be convinced from the study of the book that this guy was obviously a faithful servant. I mean, he was faithful to the Lord, as we'll see, uh, and he essentially took God's prophetic baton from the hand of Amos. So Amos was a sort of a, a contemporary, but, but came a, a little earlier than him and his ministry, and so Hosea sort of picks that up. Again, Amos is sort of hitting hard on, the, on uh, the, the, the indictment side. And then Hosea sort of picks that up with really, even though he certainly mentions a lot of those things and, and the judgment to come, he, he still puts a heavy emphasis on, on God's salvation and God's grace. Now, what about Hosea's times? And this is, this is really, uh, really important, I think, for us to understand. He, he ministered in the 8th century B.C., uh, a century that saw a large number of very famous prophets. Again, you have, you have Hosea, you have Joel, Amos, uh, Jonah, and Micah. Uh, ministered at the minimum about 45 years, so from 755 to about 710 uh, B.C. That would be the shortest amount of time. Some say it could have been up to, say, 70 or so years. Uh, you, just try, you just try to piece together the chronology as he mentions here, the people that were reigning when he was ministering. Um, and, and just to get a sense of when he lived and when he served in the course of uh, sort of, we might, might say, redemptive history, um, I want us to just look for, for a moment at this, this sort of this overview of, of the Old Testament. Now, this is, this is a lot. Um, I don't, again, I just want to run through this just so you get I'm a visual person, so it's like if I can if I can see, oh, that happened, then that happened, then that oh, there he is. You know, that's what's going on. It, it's helpful. So let me see. Does this thing have? Oh yeah, we got a pointer. Okay. So just to begin, we're here in the upper left. We ran out of space, so we went here. Uh, but just from left to right, we have creation, Genesis one one. Of course, God creates life, uh, establishes. Uh, a leadership, uh, man, man's rule, marriage, and family. But by Genesis 3, we have ungodly leadership. We have, we have um, polygamy, we have murder. So from the fall in Genesis 3, it goes downhill pretty, pretty fast. Um, then we have this uh, primeval age, uh, really Genesis, covering sort of Genesis 6 to 8, up through. We have the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. Uh, the period of the patriarchs. Uh, Genesis 12 to 50. So again, things kind of slow down, right? So this is important stuff because, I mean, you're moving along, right? I mean, God's creating this. He's creating, I mean, things are moving. And then all of a sudden, it just sort of slows down and you get a lot of detail about these four men, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And then we have in Genesis 12, 15, and 17, the establishment of the Abrahamic covenant. The Exodus and the life of Moses, Red Sea crossing, 1444, 45 B.C., uh, the law code given uh, in say the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, with the Mosaic Covenant, into the wilderness wanderings, uh, which is the um, content of the book of books of Numbers and Deuteronomy, conquest and judges, Joshua, Judges, 
Ruth, and then the United Kingdom. And we have three, these three kings, Saul, David, and Solomon. And again, lots of, lots of detail about the lives of these three men. And of course, we really honed in on the life of Solomon in our study of Ecclesiastes. For those of you who were in the class uh, with me for the last few years, we z zeroed in on Solomon uh, and the sort of the, the, the earlier years of his life with the Song of Solomon, Song of Songs, and then the later years of his life, uh, I think sort of a, a sermon on uh, expressing his repentance toward the tail end of his life uh, with the, the sermon of Ecclesiastes, the Davidic covenant here in 2 Samuel 7. And then we have the divided kingdom, uh, which took place in 931 B.C. with the ten northern tribes, which is, then becomes sort of identified in the prophets as Israel um, under the leadership initially of Jeroboam I with the two southern tribes uh, referred to as Judah under the leadership of Rehoboam, uh, which is the son of, of Solomon. And then we have these major events. We have the Assyrian uh, captivity or invasion. They invaded the north, uh, Israel. And then we have the Babylonian invasion, captivity uh, happening in three, three stages, starting in 605, the second phase in 597, and then the temple destroyed in 586 B.C. Uh, and in this, this, this is where we find the major and the minor prophets. Uh, and we have the establishment of the new covenant mentioned in Jeremiah 31. And then a, a remnant, uh, not the vast majority, but a small number of people returned from Babylon. Um, we read about the leadership of Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah, the, the construction of the second, second temple, which was completed in 515 B.C., and then this period of, you see Malachi, there he is, Malachi, early, early, it was written early, 400s B.C., really addressing, again, just a deteriorated uh, Israel. Um, so we'll see as we go through Hosea. I mean, this is not, the restoration that you read about in the book of Hosea and these other prophets does not happen when they come back from Babylon. Uh, and we refer to this period between the rest of that, this time period, Right here, and this, or even up through, really, the, the coming of, of the Messiah uh, as the 400 silent years where the voice of God was silent, but the hand of God was active. So God was very active in those 400 years. It's just the prophetic voice stopped. So we don't have, once we, we get to Malachi, we don't have anything else as a part of our Old Testament canon. Of course, prophetic history recorded in Daniel, for those of you who were a part of the Daniel series that David taught, uh, you know, continued to move forward with divine precision. And so we have the, you know, these empires, the Assyrian, the Babylonian Empire, the, the, the uh, Medo-Persian Empire and the Greeks, uh, this period of Jewish self-rule up through the Roman period, which began in 63 B.C. So that when we get to Galatians 4.4 and Paul says, when the fullness of time came, God sent his son, this is what, <laughs> this is what he's talking about. He's just saying this is, this is the direction of redemptive history. It's been leading up to this point. And I mentioned last week, you know that just by the fact that when you start into Matthew, you talk about slowing down and giving details. The life of Christ, the birth of Christ, the life of Christ, the ministry of Christ, the teachings of Christ, uh, the miracles of Christ, the suffering of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection. I mean, all of that in and of itself points to the significance uh, that this is God's final word. I mean, this is, this is the, really the, um, the climax uh, leading up to this point. So we have Old Testament, 39 books, but look at, notice this, uh, covering 400 or 4,000 plus years of history. We get to the New Testament, there's 27 books, but they only s cover really 100 years. Um, so, except for the, the, the portions of prophecy. But as far as actual history, a uh, big difference between these two. And then you'll notice right here, I just inserted Hosea 755 to 710 uh, B.C., just to give you a sense of uh, sort of what we, you know, where he lands in, in the midst of, of all of this. Now, a question. Why did Israel split into two kingdoms in 931 B.C. after Solomon's death? So this, before we kind of get here, because a lot of what's going on with these major and minor prophets sort of stems back to this thing going on right here. So how many of you 
have an idea of what... It's, it's actually, go ahead and turn over to 1 Kings 12. And this is, real, this is recorded for us. Really, if you wanted to read this, we won't take the time. But in 1 Kings 12, verses 1 to 24, the summary of it is that the northern tribes refused to accept Rehoboam as their king. Now, there's a lot behind that, why they chose, um, why they chose not to do that. Of course, that's the human perspective, right? So that's sort of man's responsibility. We see that they reject Rehoboam as their king, and Rehoboam does some foolish things. And I mean, these people are foolishness abounds, right, in, the, in, these, in these chapters. But from a divine perspective or standpoint, we'd say that this division was a judgment for sin and idolatry. Because there's actually, at one point, the, the south is going to go and, and, and sort of, uh, they're going to go to battle with the north, and a prophet comes and calls that off. And basically, don't try to put this thing back together because this is, the, this, is the, this is the work of God. God is going to allow this to happen. He's going to let this thing roll on because in God's plan, God's going to bring <laughs> these nations against his people for the purpose of discipline, of chastening them. So from, from a human standpoint, the people reject this king that's coming from the south, and they have their, appoint their own king, Jer- Jeroboam. Um, but from God's perspective, it's really just a judgment for, for sin and idolatry. So the kingdom united under David and Solomon broke into the Davidic dynasty ruled the southern kingdom of Judah with, with its center at Jerusalem, the people of the northern kingdom, referred to as Israel, crowned Jer- Jeroboam I, their ruler, and made Shechem their royal city. Okay? So, the thing to understand here is this, this is not just a political issue, right? This is not just a political split. In fact, this split or division affected, in a, in a huge way, how the people worshipped. Uh, in establishing a new monarchy, monarchy in the north... Jeroboam and his supporters rejected Jerusalem not only as a political center but also as a religious one and set up new holy places for worshiping God at Bethel and Dan. So in a sense, this, was, this is a restoration of earlier practices since both Bethel and Dan had long histories as the sites of religious sort of shrines for Israel's tribes, but Jeroboam had more than his people's religion in mind. Okay, so they, they established these places of worship which are tied to some history in the Old Testament, which, which would make you think that's not necessarily a bad thing. But the reason this takes place, the text tells us, is that Jeroboam felt that his very survival was at stake. Okay, so, I mean, these people are not making decisions based upon what God has said. They are making decisions based upon how it's going to affect them, right? They're thinking about their own interests. So pick this up in verse 25. 1 Kings 12, 25 says, Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there, and he went out from there and built Penuel. Jeroboam said in his heart, now the kingdom will return to the house of David if this people go up to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem. Then the heart of this people will return to their Lord, even to Rehoboam king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam king of Judah. So the king consulted and made two golden calves, and he said to them, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold your gods, O Israel, that brought you up from the land of Egypt. Okay, so this guy, this is the major problem, okay? Essentially, and the text tells us what's going on, right? He's saying these things in his heart. Basically, what he's saying is, if we don't cut the people off from going to Jerusalem, then they're going to eventually come back under uh, the, the, the influence of, of Judah in the, in the south, the southern, southern tribe, two southern tribes. So he, he wants to prevent that because he's saying, if that happens, then I'm likely to die. And so he actually makes these golden calves. And then notice what he says, it's too much for you. <laughs> it's like, like he's doing them a favor. It's just, 
I mean, to go to Jerusalem, that's a, that's, that's a pretty treacherous journey. That's a long way. I mean, I'm just trying to make things more convenient and accessible. And so he does this. And what's interesting is that these are the, in verse 28, these are the identical words which their fathers had used when they worshipped the golden calf in the wilderness. You can go over to Exodus chapter 32, verse 4, and you'll find the almost identical phraseology there. Because it's not just about worshipping these golden calves, but notice what it's saying is, these are the things that brought you up from the land of Egypt. So this, is, this is like flagrant idolatry. So he says in verse, uh, verse, verse 29, says, He set one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. Now this thing became a sin, for the people went to worship before the one as far as Dan. And he made house, houses on high places, made priests from among all the people who were not of the sons of Levi. Another, another violation. Verse 32, Jeroboam instituted a feast in the eighth month on the fifteenth day of the month like the feast which was in Judah, and he went up to the altar. Thus he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves which he had made, and he stationed in Bethel the priests of the high places which he had made. Then he went up to the altar which he had made in Bethel on the fifteenth day in the eighth month, even in the month which he had devised in his own heart. And he instituted a feast for the sons of Israel and went up to the altar to burn incense. So this is... he. he he is determining how he wants to worship. <laughs> he is the one that's writing the handbook on this is how we please God. This is how we worship God. Now, again, folks, I mean, that's easy. To go, that, it's easy to look at that guy and say he's an idiot, right? But do we, we do this, right? Again, the, 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 the scriptures are not there for us to call these people fools and dummies and then to think that we don't do this, right? I mean, we do this sometimes. We try to, rather than comply with what God has said about how we're to worship, sometimes we decide what we want to do, when we want to do it, how we want to do it. So that is the broader backdrop. The kingdom is divided. Judah and Israel have been doing their own thing. And then you go back to Hosea. So flip back over to Hosea 1.1. The word of the Lord which came to Hosea, the son of Biri, during the days of... And then it gives these individuals. Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the days of Jeroboam, the, sons of, the son of Joash, king of Israel. Okay, so who are these people? Well, Uzziah is also referred in the Old Testament as Azariah, ruled over Judah from 790 to 739 B.C. So we know that at least the tail end of this man's reign, that by the time he uh, stopped ruling in Judah, that Hosea's ministry had already begun. And you remember this, you may remember how this, uh, this particular guy usurped the priestly function and was struck with leprosy. Uh, we read about that over in 2 Chronicles 26. Then we have Jotham. Jotham ruled over Judah from 750 to 731. So you'll, and you'll notice when you do the chronology of some of these kings, there's an overlap in their reigns, which just simply indicates a co-regency, uh, such as a, ruling, a, a son ruling alongside of his dad. So where you have like, well, this guy, his reign didn't end until this time, but it says that this guy's reign began before this guy's reign came to an end. And what that is is there's, there's that overlap, usually because a father is sharing that, that uh, responsibility with uh, his, his son or relative, and that son or that one to, that's following behind hasn't uh, singularly sort of taken, taken that leadership role. Uh, of course, Jotham condoned idolatrous practices, which opened the door to his successor, Ahaz. Um, Ahaz went and encouraged the people in their, in their Baal worship, Second Chronicles 27. Uh, ruled over Judah from 735 to 715. And Hezekiah says here, kings, uh, these are all kings of Judah. Hezekiah ruled from 715 to 686 B.C. Uh, and led a revival which served to slow down Judah's advance toward an end that was very similar to that of Israel. So these first four kings mentioned were in the south. Okay, so we have these guys over here. These are the kings of Judah. And then we have this one mentioned. Uh, it says, during the, and also during the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. Now, this is Jeroboam the second. Okay, so don't get him confused with, with uh, Jeroboam the first. But the Jeroboam the second ruled over Israel, so the northern tribes from 793 to 753. But when you put that 
along the, alongside of the list of the guys on, on the left, and what you realize is that Hosea's long career also spanned the last six kings of Israel. So based on the timing of the reign of these men, if, if Hosea was ministering during this time period, then it has to go beyond just the reign of Jeroboam II in the north. It has to include also these final six uh, kings in the north. So we have Zechariah, whose reign in Israel lasted from 753 to 752. You know, that was a, he, he, he was impeached. Not quite. Um, Shalom uh, ruled over Israel seven, in, in 752. That was it. Okay, so these guys did not stay around very long. Menahem ruled from 752 to 742. Uh, but even at this time, Israel was beginning to pay tribute to Assyria. So what you're seeing is, this, is that Assyria is becoming, a, basically, a, they're, they're, they're becoming a superpower. Okay, and so to make peace, these northern tribes are beginning to try to, again, they're trying to appease Assyria and keep Assyria at bay. They do that by paying tribute. Uh, Pekahiah ruled from 742 to 740. Pekah ru ruled from 752 to 732 uh, and, and engaged Assyria, fought uh, Assyria. At one point, Hosea ruled over Israel 732 to 722, also paying tribute to Assyria. And to highlight, I guess you'd say, the chaos that's going on in this, in this time period, four of these six kings were assassinated by their successors. Hence, so that's some of these guys that didn't, didn't last very long. There's, there's a reason. That's the reason why they didn't last very long. Uh, we also know that Hosea prophesied during the days surrounding the fall of Samaria in 722 B.C. So, so we don't have these men listed, but again, based on the timing, we know that he was there pretty much until this whole thing unraveled, right? And Assyria came in and, and essentially uh, just wiped them out. So for the most part, weak kings... Men who reigned in the north and the south who repeatedly sought alliances with their heathen neighbors rather than seeking the Lord's help. So this is one of those sort of themes that goes through the minor prophets, even the major prophets, is that in God's providence, He brings these, these circumstances into the life of Israel and into the life of Judah. But again, they're... They're trials meant to purify and to test and to reveal hearts, but when we don't turn to the Lord and when we allow our sinful desires right, to drive us, then they are temptations. Right? First Corinthians 10.13. It's the same the, the, the term there in First Corinthians 10.13 can be translated trials or temptations. It all depends on how we respond. Right? The, the issue is what's going on in here. The circumstances don't change. It's what's going on in our hearts and minds. So just to get a glimpse of this, turn over to Hosea 7. Hosea 7, and again, this is just an example. Um, of, of, we'll see this in, in Hosea's prophecies. Again, you would see this theme repeated in some of the other prophets. Verse 1 says, When I would heal Israel, the iniquity of Ephraim is uncovered, and the evil deeds of Samaria, for they deal falsely. The thief enters in, bandits raid outside, and they do not consider in their hearts that I remember all their wickedness. Now their deeds are all around them. They are before my face. With their wickedness they make the king glad, and the princes with their lies. They are all adulterers, like an oven heated by the baker who ceases to stir up the fire from the kneading of the dough until it is leavened. On the day of our king, the princess became sick with the heat of wine. He stretched out his hand with scoffers, for their hearts are like an oven as they approach their plotting. Their anger smolders all night, in the, and in the morning it burns like a flaming fire. All of them are, like a, like an, are hot like an oven, and they consume their rulers. All their kings have fallen. None of them calls on me. That's the problem. The problem is you have these men dealing with a massive threat, the Assyrians, 
God providentially bringing difficult circumstances to get them to turn to him, but what they did is they just consulted one another, right? What do you think? What do you think? What do you think we should do? Or they're looking inward, like, like they have, they're going to come up with this on their own. But, but the scriptures say that none of them were calling on the Lord. Verse 8, Ephraim mixes himself with the nations. So again, their tendency was to look inward and then to go other places. Not to the Lord, but to say, let's go get the so-and-sos to help us. So they mix himself with the nations. Ephraim has become a cake, not turned. Strangers devour his strength, yet he does not know it. Gray hairs also are sprinkled on him, yet he does not know it. Though the pride of Israel testifies against him, yet they have not returned to the Lord their God, nor have they sought him for all of this. Now, if you wanted to know more, you could go to the biblical record of this, this whole period when Hosea ministered in uh, 2 Kings 14, to, chapters 14 to 20, covers this, this whole span of these rulers. Also, to sort of parallel that, you've got 2 Chronicles 26, chapters 26 to 32, but this is the summary. Hosea began his ministry to Israel during the final days of Jeroboam II, who reigned during a season when Israel was enjoying both political peace and material prosperity, but also moral corruption and spiritual bankruptcy. And after Jeroboam II died in 753 B.C., the nation rapidly declined and anarchy prevailed. And many of these problems go back to the days of Jeroboam I, who had set up rival worship, so that the people would not go to Jerusalem to worship in the divinely appointed way. He introduced calf worship uh, so that outwardly the different ceremonies of the law, the feasts, new moons, Sabbath days, sacrifices, all those were maintained, but it was all corrupt worship. The calf was the immediate object of that idolatrous worship. You see this. They sacrificed to the calf. Hosea 13.2 says they kissed the calf. Amos 8.4 says they swore by these idol calves, and all of this paved the way for a much, you might even say a, a more blatant and cruel worship of nature under the names of Baal and Ashtaroth with all their abominations of consecrated child sacrifices and degrading sensuality. And Hosea informs us of all of it. So you go through Hosea, you're going to see this falsehood. Adultery that was consecrated as an act of worship and religion. Bloodshed, excess and luxury, perversion of justice, grinding of the poor, debauchery among the people all the way from the common man all the way up to the princes and the kings and the priests. Places once sacred through God's revelation became scenes of vileness and wickedness. The knowledge of God was willfully rejected. So these people had, had the truth, they just weren't willing to, sub, to submit to it. And for that, they, they hated rebuke. They hated rebuke. So get the picture here. The first half of the 8th century B.C. was a time of prosperity for Israel, a time of peace and a time of blessing. Israel was enjoying a season of peace, prosperity, and prestige, and the people were living seemingly blessed contented lives. But unfortunately, good times do not always produce good worship. Right? So outwardly, things look good. Right? They had expanded their borders. They actually had taken back some land that they had lost in previous uh, years. So the borders had expanded. People were feeling good. Things looking great. Money in, in the account good health, and all that, but not from the standpoint of their spiritual condition and their worship. And that brings us to Hosea's message. Hosea's message. What are the themes of the book of Hosea? And I would say there are the two major themes are the spiritual adultery of Israel and the future salvation of Israel. And we're going to see sort of this, again, this back and forth of either Hosea addressing the unfaithfulness of Israel, but then usually behind that promises of a future time and future day of salvation and restoration. The primary message of Hosea being 
that though Israel was unfaithful, God's faithful love in the end will prevail. That's the thrust of the book. Or as George Zimmick and Todd Murray, they have a a commentary on Hosea, but they actually, they they say their title is Love Beyond Degree. This is about astounding grace. That when, when you read about all the things that are going on in the nation of Israel, it absolutely ought to blow you away that God can, continues to pursue them, continues to, to draw them back with cords of love, continues to keep his promises, keep his word to them. So this, this is about God's love, God's loyal love for his covenant people Israel in spite of their idolatry, That is the theme, and Hosea personally lives this theme out painfully in his own life. So that when people, if if someone came up to Hosea and, and said, hey, I heard that your wife ran away from you. And we'll look at this in the first three chapters of Hosea. Hosea would respond, yes, and that is exactly what you've done. You have become unfaithful to your heavenly husband. And, and they would be, amazingly, I think they'd be shocked. Like, because why? Because they're looking at all the outward things in their life, and they're thinking, but things are great. What are you talking about? And, of course, what Jose is getting at is this, this issue of, of idolatry, going after other gods. And so Hosea's life becomes this very painful visual aid, but at the same time a very powerful visual aid. So, our God is a jealous God whose love for His own will tolerate no rival, which is, what, which is why we find so much condemnation and judgment in the book of Hosea. But that being said, it's also true that the Lord's love for His people is unending. And that is why we not only see sin and judgment in Hosea, but forgiving love and astounding grace. So I would just say, I mean, we, we hadn't even got that far into it. I mean, all we're talking about is the background, right, and the times, and the man. But I'm saying, can you identify? I mean, just, just looking at the history of this, can you identify with what's going on here? The substitution of outer forms for inward realities. Hello, has that ever happened to you? Have you ever been concerned about appearance? Have you ever been concerned about keeping up an image or, 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 or trying to come across as, as spiritually minded and mature and that you've got it all together when that's just not the case? Maybe it's a moral decline in your life. Maybe it's a spiritual a backsliding, a rejection of the truth in spite of the prospering of God. <laughs> right? So it's like, in one sense, it's like you're convicted about things But then the temptation is, again, to look around, and because you don't see any immediate consequences for your disobedience, you talk yourself into believing that it must not be that bad, right? Because you're not seeing any consequences. What about this issue of idolatry? You say, well, I don't do that. (laughs) Really? (laughs) You don't, do you commit idolatry? I do. Covetousness? When you think of idolatry, think of covetousness, right? You want something so bad that you're willing to sin in order to get it, right? And, and so a covetousness, spiritual adultery, a forsaking of God to whom we are devoted and espoused to, to cleave to other things. Uh, Martin Luther said this, To whatever we look for any good thing and for refuge in every need, that is what is meant by God. To have a God is nothing else than to trust and believe in Him from the heart. To whatever you give your heart and entrust your being, that, I say, is really your God. Or as Brad Bigney says this in his book, Gospel Treason, an idol is anything or anyone that captures our hearts, minds, and affections more than God. Are you guilty of idolatry? <laughs> right? I mean, join the club. Right? This, this is not some... Oh, those people, I can't believe they did that. This is, I can't believe I did this yesterday, right? In that split second where I sinned against someone because they stood in the way of something that I wanted in that moment. That's idolatry. It can be a desire for success, a lust for reputation, a longing for power, 
a lust for pleasure or riches, a craving for control and independence, a lust for respect or attention, a desire for comfort or a hurt-free life. And we look to anything and anyone but the Lord to give us what we long for and what we think we need. That's all that Israel was doing, right? Their needs, their real needs, and even, like I said, we have, the Lord gives us holy desires, right? He gives us holy ambitions. But I'm saying the people of Israel were not concerned with what God had said, and they were setting their hearts on things that God had forbidden. And even again in our lives, it sometimes comes in the form of things that we can justify as good things. But we want them too much, and we're willing to pursue them and trust in them and turn to them and seek them more than we're willing at times to seek the Lord. And as we said last week, we need to recognize how much we are like Gomer and like Israel. Because without humbling our hearts under the reality of how often we participate in idol worship, we will be tempted to stare at Israel in self-righteous unbelief. We'll be going through Hosea and just sort of staring, going, what is their problem? When what we ought to be doing is seeing Hosea as a mirror and saying, that's, that's me, that's me. So I would just say, guys, as, as we get into this, and, and again, next, next Sunday we're going to get as far as we can into chapter 1, hopefully most of chapter 1, but it doesn't get any more relevant than this. So those people that say this is not relevant, you know, this is just, this is just you know, out of date, put it away, doesn't speak to us today, that's just a lie. That's just a lie. We're going to have to dig, right? We've got to get into all these people and places and events and context and all that. And this is not an easy book. It's not going to be a breeze. We're not just going to breeze through it and understand everything. In fact, we're going to get through and who knows, you may have 10 questions that we didn't even find answers to. I mean, you, you might come across things and just say, what does that verse mean? And we're going to try to, to interpret that. We're going to look for the intention of the author. We're going to try to pull out the implications for them. We're going to try to connect that to the implications for our own lives. But that doesn't mean we're going to answer every question. But I'm saying it doesn't get any more relevant. It doesn't get any more applicable than any other passage of Scripture. I'm just saying it's, it is as relevant as anything else in the Scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament. So my prayer is the Lord will use it that way, use it in a mighty way in our, in our hearts. So go ahead again. I just encourage you to be studying some of those passages in Chronicles and Kings if you want to go back and read some of that just to get familiar. I wish I could remember all this stuff. You know, you get into this and you start getting familiar with these, the people and the timelines and what's going on. And then if you put it down and you don't come back to it for a year or two years or three years, I wish I could go back to things and remember everything, you know, but it, that just doesn't happen for me. So it's like you have to get back into it and kind of familiarize yourself. So just do, do, as, do as much as you can to just become familiar with the book itself and with some of the things that are going on and you know, you'll get more out of it. Uh, the more you put into it. So, okay, folks, uh, thank you for your time.